Thank you, Kent. If you will, take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. I don't know if you're up for a little tongue-in-cheek humor this morning. Before we dig into this uh, deep subject, I was studying this passage this week, and I could preach this message this morning from Matthew, Mark, or Luke, any of the synoptic gospels, because they all contain the story. And so I preached this message with deference to Beverly Croner this morning. I mean, can you think about it? The years that she's lived and the time that her, times that her and her husband, who is our chairman of deacons, Mark, have been in discussions. I know they don't argue. Hello? And Mark would come back with her with, according to the book of Mark... What a big, what a big weapon! And everybody knows I'm teasing, but uh, um, it could come from any uh, any of those three books. And I'll tell you, this is a um, this has been weighing heavy on my on my heart this week. Played golf in our golf tournament yesterday, which was which was a lot of fun, and I couldn't even I couldn't even think about the golf because my mind was right here on this message because it's so pointed, it's so personal, it's so practical, and if we will let it be, it's so powerful. I'm going to let them hit the space bar one more time because I want you to get this title. It's one more thing. I've prayed every day for this message. Prayed for me, prayed for you. So let's bow. I want to pray right now. Heavenly Father, I don't know all that you would like to do today. But I know in my heart of hearts that you've got your bullseye on us and you want to do something. I pray that for the next few moments that you would open our eyes. And that you would open the eyes of our heart so we can see what you're wanting to say to us. Today, in Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 10, we pick up in verse 23. It's kind of in the, in the middle of a story. And this is, I want you to think about it. They're standing there and it says, Jesus looked around. Did y'all get that? Jesus looked around. And then he focused on his disciples and he said to his disciples how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter God's kingdom. Now I want you to think about that. That blew those guys away. They weren't prepared to hear that. How do we know? The next sentence says the disciples were astonished at his works. Why were they astonished? These guys were Jewish businessmen. Now, did you get that? Jewish businessmen. The theology of the Jewish culture was that a sign of God's blessing was great wealth. 
They had been taught this all of their lives. They had studied the likes of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and gosh, how about Solomon? Solomon had so much wealth that he'd make Donald Trump look like a pauper. But don't feel too hard at the Jewish theology. Because it's the modern day American church theology. If a man has a lot of money, a lot of wealth, he's got to be blessed by God. And the poor, well, you know, you can figure it out. So let's get back to the scripture. You see those two. The disciples were astonished at his word. Let me tell you what happened. Let's put it in modern day language. Jesus made this statement, how hard it is for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he's looking at his disciples who he spoke it to, and he saw the color drain from their faces. They thought, what in the world? And so, you know, you think that Jesus is this tender lamb, this this, uh, uh, gentle shepherd, and you think the next words he says... Is going to, are going to be words of comfort and peace that he really didn't mean what he said. But you know what he said? He said, uh, kids, this is serious stuff. What I want to say to you today, brothers and sisters, this is serious stuff. Well, he didn't actually say that was a watch translation. You see on the screen it said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. He didn't even mention rich time. He said how hard it is. But then he raised the bar when he says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, the eye of a needle, than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want to just tell you this. The disciples understood. They understood the seriousness of the moment. They understood the seriousness of the teaching. Because watch what the next verse says. The next verse says they were even more astonished. That's amazed. That is dumbfounded. That is speechless. That is astounding. They were astounded at this teaching of Jesus. And they asked, who could be saved? I want to I just, if you can put your attention on the screen just for a second. They're going to hit the space bar because I want to highlight something here. How hard. I want you to look at those sentences, both of those sentences, and what somebody say it out loud. What punctuation does both of those sentences end with? Well, half of you still remember English, okay? Exclamation point. That means it was said in the emphatic nature. That means Jesus was serious about what he said. So the question comes to me, we'll just leave that there for a second. The question comes to me, how do we define a wealthy or a rich person? If Jesus actually said this and doubled down on it, we need to know what that means. Would you agree? This means yes, that means no. You could say amen if you'd like. Well, certainly if I asked this crowd, we'd use terms like millionaire and billionaire. Certainly those are wealthy people, no argument. I have a different perspective about it, which some of you will be able to walk and understand what I'm about to tell you. My dad worked hard for his family. I remember it from about 1959, 1958. 1960, we moved to Purvis. He worked for Purvis Valley. He worked 40 hours a week, hard, come in. 
and uh, sweaty every day. I mean, his clothes were, worked with those Chris Oak poles. That was back before they actually had uh, uh, digger trucks, bucket trucks, where you could set poles and dig the holes. You had to do it by hand. He worked hard, and not only did he work hard 40 to 50 hours a week because he was a serviceman for Pearl Valley, he had asked Pearl Valley, and they had given him a 35-foot Chris Oak pole, and he cut it off, as I recall, he cut it off two twelves, two twelves, and he put those in the ground five foot, and he, he took the balance and put up here, and so now he had him a frame, and what he did is that he, he put him a, a come along on that uh, top bar so that when he came home at night, he could pull engines out of vehicles and rebuild those engines. Now, as a kid, I thought he just, Todd, I thought he loved working on cars, but you know what he was doing? He was working hard to make sure that his family had food, clothing, and shelter. He was working hard. We never missed or lacked for anything, but he had to work hard. In my mind, a wealthy or rich person are those people who want for nothing. There are those people that when they, when they come to the place in their life where they find something that they want, they go on the Internet, at Amazon, the Facebook ads, they go somewhere and they order it and they get it. And you want, let me just tell you something. That's where we are. That's us today. Why in the world do you think you have such trouble buying birthday presents and Christmas gifts? What do you get from people who's got everything they want? That's the wealthy. You know what the truth is? We know deep inside our hearts that we are among the wealthiest people in this world. Personally, I miss those days, and I remember those days of wishing. Wishing for something, wanting something, longing for something, excited about Christmas. While we're in our affluent state, this scripture jumps out at us. And if we have any sense in our heads and our hearts, it strikes us at the heart. Not only does Jesus say it's difficult for people for people to get to the kingdom of God, he says it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Let's just be honest. This is one of those biblical principles that we'd prefer our pastor just to pass over and not really unpack for us. We'd rather just leave it alone, let sleeping dogs lie. Because of what I said at the beginning, how pointed and powerful and personally convicting it is and can be. If we don't attempt to water down this teaching, it may cause us to be like his disciples who were astonished, utterly astonished, amazed, dumbfounded, speechless. The list goes on if we believe the Bible. If we believe the Bible. So I just want to ask this. Now, normally I ask these questions and I expect you to respond, and I don't tell you that I expect you to respond. And and you know that in a Baptist church, all you're expected to do is sit there and be quiet. So I want you to respond. Do we believe the Bible? Okay, would y'all do this with me? Like we do our Bible reading, would y'all just read the first core belief up there? I want to read it out loud so people across the road can hear it. Would you read it? The Bible is our guidebook. Now, if the Bible is our guidebook, 
If the Bible is our guidebook, we need to take this story seriously. When I, when I read this, when I read this book, when I read this story, it raises three questions for me. Question number one, how would Jesus say something like this? Hello? Number two, what in the world does it mean? Number three, can no one who is well off financially go to heaven? Is that really what he's saying? Now, I'm not going to just run all down those questions. There's a real powerful message here, but I will start with this. Why in the world would Jesus say this? Verse 23 through 26. Why would he say something like that? Well, here's the truth. Context is everything. If we look and see the story, we're going to give it some context. So if you've still got your Bibles open, we started reading in verse 23. Jump back to verse 17. Verse 17. And here it is. As he, now that's Jesus, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I believe there was a pregnant pause there. And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Once again, I believe it was a long pause. And then he goes, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The rich man said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Have you ever had somebody to talk to you and tell you something that you knew was not true? What would you do? You just kind of looked at him a little bit, right? Well, look what he says. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. And then he said to him, here it is, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he, the rich man, was dismayed by this demand. Did you see it? Demand. And he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Let's pray together. Father, there are times that you stick us right in the heart with the truth of your word. I pray that you would use the sword of your spirit to lance our hard, cold heart. You'd use the flame of your spirit to melt our cold heart. And then you'd speak into us what you want us to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. Your pastor has called this the eye of the needle principle. 
This man that we'll call the rich young ruler, we call him that because it's true. He said that he was rich. Certainly, he was young. Let's learn from this seemingly rich, seemingly young, seemingly good, seemingly upright man as he comes to Jesus. Now, you know me well enough to know that I don't see a booger behind every, a demon behind every rock, a booger behind every door. I'm just, I have some pastor friends, you give them a situation, they find the negative in it. I'm just not that way. But ever since I was a young man, how this young man, how this rich young ruler approached Jesus always has raised my eyebrows. I mean, he seemed to do things right. Here's the thing. He was raised right. He was raised good. He was taught to do good. In fact, I dare say, if Miss Manners, y'all remember that book? If Miss Manners graded him, that he had done just everything just about socially acceptable. He put his best foot forward. I mean, I can look here and just point to some things. Is that, is that his approach, he ran up to Jesus, gave it a sense of urgency. His approach. The truth is, is that he wanted everybody to think that he needed Jesus. He wanted Jesus to think he was ready. And then look at how he, look at how he uh, uh, appeared to honor Jesus. He fell down on his knees before him. Brothers and sisters, I know you're tired of your pastor saying this, but when we won't fall down on our knees before Jesus, you need to know you will now or later, and now if you can volunteer later, he will force you to your knees. Hello? He came and he approached Jesus. He ran as, with a sense of urgency. He came and he appeared like, like he wanted to trust Jesus. And then he asked a question that only God could answer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? When I read this story and I see this, for me, I wonder, this is me, what tipped Jesus off that this man was less than sincere? What tipped him off? Was it his appearance? Did he go home and, and get his hair moosed and all, every hair in place, comb that beard, put him some, some uh, cream on his face? Did he put on all the trappings so when Jesus looked at him, he knew this was a good guy who had a lot of money? Was it his attire? Did he dress up for Jesus, go get the best gown in a mall and so he could, Jesus would know who he was and know how wealthy he was. Was it his attitude? Well, Brother Jerry, he said, good teacher. Yes, he said, good teacher. But here's my question for you. Wonder what his voice inflection was. Was it a sign of respect or disrespect? Was it a sign of admiration or arrogance? Good teacher. Was it a sign of submission sarcasm. Well, we don't know for sure. But what I will say is this. Please, hear, if you don't hear anything else, hear this at this point. Are you listening? Jesus always sees through our verbal games. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. Jesus always sees through our verbal games. We can say, I love you, Lord. Or we can sing, I love you, Lord. But our love, he knows that our love is not number one. He knows what falls above him in our love life. 
what it is that we love more than we love him. We can say, I will serve you, but I'll serve you when I get through with everything else I got to do because there's a laundry list of things that are, that are in front of you, and when I get down to you, I will serve you. We can say, I'll tell others about you while the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart is on us instead of on him. We talk about us. We talk about our favorite things. We don't really talk about him. We can say, I'll be faithful. But we're more faithful to the things of this world because we love the things of this world more than we love the things that are eternal. Here's what I'll tell you. It don't matter where you are on that scale. Jesus hears. He knows. And he sees. He knows before he hears and sees because he created you. He knows your inward part. He sees you before you see yourself. I got to thinking about how to illustrate this. In the computer world, computer programmers write code for a program, and then they lock it up on the front with a security system so that nobody can come in and mess with their code. But a good programmer will write them a backdoor in. It's just a one word or one phrase or something that they can, if they need to come and fix that programming, they can get in the back door and get to the programming. That's exactly how you are to God. He wrote your code. And he knows what's going on. The truth is, is that you take a look at this young man who says he wants eternal life. So Jesus took kind of a quasi-legal approach. I know we have some folks in here who work in the legal field, and you want to come up and fix me after this, it's fine. But Jesus took a quasi-legal approach in three steps. He began with the inquiry. The inquiry. You see, the man had come and said, I want to do this. His inquiry was, he said, good teacher, I want to do this. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? And I think he just paused. Why do you call me good? What is the deal here? And you see, if the man had answered, it would have told himself, it would have told the listeners, and it would have reminded the Lord that this man had a good, a good uh, understanding of where he was. Because you see, with that question, Jesus took this rich young ruler in an awkward place because he had to confess. If he had been serious, please listen. If this rich young ruler had been serious about trusting Jesus, about giving his life to Jesus, about letting Jesus change his life, he would have followed with a big testimony. Yeah, I call you good because you are God. Jesus said, why do you call me good? And he just let it hang out there. And then he looks at the man and he goes, don't you know that no one's good but God? So was this rich young ruler actually calling Jesus God? This is a revealing inquiry for everyone. Each of us could take this and should take this. Because because a rich young ruler was saying, ask this question only God can answer. How can I have eternal life? And Jesus goes, why are you calling me God? No one's good but God. Nobody can answer that question but God. Are you saying, are you believing I'm God? 
Do you believe he's God? The inquiry that Jesus put on this man is with us today. I want to say this before I pass. Your God, brothers and sisters, with all the love I have in my heart, your God is what it is that you bow down to. It is what you submit to. It is what you spend your money on. It is what you give your life to. Because you see, God commands all you are. Whether it's Jehovah God or another God, your God commands all that you are. Demands it. Commands it. That's the inquiry. When Jesus got through the inquiry, he found this guy was suspect, so he moved on to the investigation. Number two. He moved to the investigation. Since this man was not ready to profess or confess Jesus as Lord, Jesus wanted to investigate this. And how did he do this? You got it right there in the scripture. He pointed to the law. Does everybody know this? No one's saved by keeping the law. In fact, nobody really knew what sin was until God gave the law in Exodus 20. The law is that thing that reminds us that we need Jesus. And Jesus used six of the commandments just in rapid fire. He said, do not murder, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. You know what Jesus was trying to do to this man? Are you all with me? He was trying to get this rich young ruler to admit he was lost and in need of a Savior. Do you know what else? Did you realize that is an essential part of becoming a Christ follower, of being saved, of trusting Jesus? Have you ever been to that place in your life where you knew that you were lost? You knew that if you died today that you would go to a place called hell? You knew there was no hope for you outside of some divine help? If you never came to that place, I'm just going to tell you, chances are you never had a reason to get saved. Oh, yeah, you had a reason to walk an aisle. You had a reason to join a church. You had a reason to get baptized. You had a reason to join Sunday school or groups or whatever. But you never had a reason to change your life and let Jesus come and change your life unless you knew you were lost. That's the truth of Scripture. Jesus used six of these commandments. And without him blinking, just like we... I mean, I just read them to him. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Have you done these things? Oh, yeah, Lord. I've kept them since I was a kid. Really? I want to suggest to you, submit to you, say to you, that quite likely those guys, this man, forgot Jesus' first message. Does anybody know what his first message, first sermon was? Tell me what it was, Brent. I'll just put him on the spot. It's a sermon on the mount. His first sermon. And do you realize that after he gave the Beatitudes, it's about about salt and light, he had this section in there that goes like this. You have heard it said, that's the old law, but I say to you, are y'all with me? You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, don't murder, but I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister are guilty of judgment. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, any man who's looked on a woman with lust has committed adultery in his heart. You have heard it said, don't break an oath. I say, don't take an oath. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, but I say, love your enemy. By the way, he proceeded that with, 
Don't say that I've come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. You see, Jesus, Jesus is the standard. He was trying to get this man. Now, you need to remember this young, rich young ruler. Watch this, folks. He was wealthy. He was good. He was moral. He was upright. Likely he went to church every week. Likely he gave his tithe. He did everything that he was supposed to do under the law. But Jesus didn't have his heart. Jesus, I've kept all of these things. And when I, when I was putting this together and praying it through, you know what I'm thinking of? My mama who lived out in Improve. She'd go, boy, that took a lot of gumption. Now, I don't know what gumption is. Nobody's ever explained it to me. But it sure did take a lot of it to stand to Jesus and lie to him. Because you see, most of the time, most of the time, we say things we don't mean. This man might have been good, but he wasn't sinless. With all the love in my heart, you may be good, but you're not sinless. How do I know? It's the nature of mankind. We're prone to sin. We're prone to wonder. We're prone to break the Lord, the law. It's, it's in our DNA. In fact, I was reading this morning in Genesis. And when Noah came down, came out of the ark... And he built an altar. And God saw the altar and he smelled the sacrifice. And he made the covenant to never destroy the earth again. He said, because, go back and read it. I'm not going to tell you which verse. Just read the whole chapter to do you good. Genesis 8. And he says, because the heart of man is filled with evil from the time of his youth. You see Above all things, the heart is deceitful. We may want to challenge when somebody, when some, we want, may want to bristle when somebody challenges us spiritually. Certainly this rich young ruler didn't like you, but I'm also say this investigation continues today right here in this room. It's with wealthy people. It's with poor people. It's with you. It's with me. Have you kept the commandments? No. Can you fix yourself? No. But is there hope for you? Oh, yeah. There is hope for us. And it is the same hope that this man had. The painful truth is this man had such a high opinion of himself and loved the temporal things of this world so much that God had to take his place and line of secession about important things to him. He loved this world more than he loved the Creator. He loved his wealth more than he loved the Creator. He loved everything more than his Creator. All he wanted was a ticket to heaven. Does that sound familiar? He began with the inquiry. Why do you call me good? No one's good but God. And then he gave the investigation. Do not... Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. I mean, the list goes on. And then he ended with the indictment. You know what an indictment is. If not, we have folks in this room. I could get you to come up here and tell you legally what it is. 
It's when they haul you into court. It's when they file charges against you. It's when they file papers against you because they believe you're guilty. The indictment. I want you to see how different this is because Jesus looked at the man just like he's looking at you, like he's looking at me. He looked at the man, and he loved the man. How much did he love him? He loved him so much that he spread his arms and died for him. How much does he love you? Just that much. He looked at the man, and he loved the man. But he loved the man so much that he didn't want to leave him like he found him. So I believe, based on Scripture and my knowledge of Jesus, I believe it was in a very loving voice. He looked at him, and he loved him. And this is what he said. You lack one thing. Wouldn't it be horrible to get to heaven or, or get into eternity and miss heaven and know that you just lack one thing? Wouldn't it be horrible for your sons and daughters to miss heaven because they lacked one thing? This man was raised in a righteous family, taught to do good, taught to be good, taught to obey the law. And to this man, he said, you only lack one thing. Now I want to pause here, put a pause button here. Because you've missed this. If you believe that what Jesus is teaching is that you've got to be a financial pauper to be in the kingdom. But you know what he is teaching? Please listen. He is teaching that nothing can be your God but him. You see, he knew, Jesus knew that this man loved his money more than he loved God. He knew that the the possibility of this man taking the money off the throne of his life was an impossibility. So it had to go. That's why he told him to go sell it. Jesus was telling this man and us, are y'all listening? I'm almost done. You will have no other God beside me. He shares his glory with nobody. Brother Jerry, are you telling us that we should go sell our possessions? Not unless your possessions have become your God. Not unless they've replaced God in your life. I don't know if you remember. I should say I I know you remember because I know you remember every word I say every week for years years past. But it wasn't too many weeks ago that I spoke to you about A life pleasing to God is a life in order. Jesus died on the cross to forgive your sin, to make you right with him, to to give you a place in heaven, to make you right with God, and to give you a life where your priorities are in order. If we're honest, many people, perhaps people in this room, have things in their life that have replaced God. There are things in your life that are more important to you than God, and your life's out of order. And you lack one thing.
when I think of one thing I remember Paul saying, one thing I do, I forget the past and I move forward. You know why I wanted to forget the past? He had some good things to happen in the past, but he had some bad things to happen in the past. He wanted to forget those. I remember the blind man. He's going, I don't know whether he's good or bad, but one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. The psalmist wrote, one thing I ask from you, Lord, is to dwell in his house and to gaze on his beauty. This morning, as I end, what would be the one thing that you asked of God today? Would you ask him, Lord, save me. Lord, secure me. Lord, give me confidence that I have eternal life. I'm just going to say this to you. Jesus is the only one who can offer you eternal life. Either you've trusted him or you've not. Without him, there is no eternity. Without him, you have everything to look for. What is that one thing that you ask him for? What is the one thing that God is asking of you today? Is he asking you to come and be saved? Is he asking you to come back to him and and have that fresh encounter? Is he asking you to take something out of your life that has replaced him and put him back in center? What one thing is God speaking to you today about? Let's pray together.